some of the factors that are clearly implicated in violent crime across our cities and indeed across the country. Economic deprivation, high levels of joblessness, being stuck in low-wage, low or no-benefit jobs, low levels of educational attainment, racial segregation. These are all conditions that are associated with higher levels of violence, no matter where you look. In recent years, it looks like violent crime from a much smaller base has increased both in rural areas and the suburbs, but primarily in central cities. Central cities bear the brunt of the increase in violent crime, and yet they're also the leaders in the slowing of that increase that we saw last year. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. Our weekly podcast originates from and connects the gateway city to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. One of the most important things that's on many people's mind today, and actually has been almost for 10, 15 years, maybe more than that, but most recently, crime and policing. And what are we doing with that? On the line, we have uh, Dr. Richard Rosenfeld. He's Curator's Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. He He also serves served as the criminologist-in-residence for the City of St. Louis Department of Public Safety and the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. He received his Ph.D. and B.A. in sociology from the University of Oregon. He's got some areas of expertise, and that's why we're talking to him today. U.S. crime trends, crime statistics, criminal justice policy, and violent crime. Dr. Rosenfeld, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. I guess I... We had a preliminary conversation about this with listeners last week, and we talked a little bit about the Ferguson effect. And would you describe that? I know there are people who believe in that. There are people who don't believe in that. And a mm-hmm. lot of what happens is based upon people's experience, I think, what they listen to in the media and not what they hear from people such as yourself who have studied these things. So would you describe that for us, please? Yeah, that was a term that was first introduced about five, now six years ago, by then uh, city uh, police chief Sam Dotson. And uh, he introduced the term uh, shortly after the killing uh, in uh, Ferguson, the police killing. And that had uh, generated a great deal of social unrest in our area and indeed across the country. And what he meant by it was that, uh, as he put it, um, during a period of unrest, especially when the police are being taken off their normal patrol routines and redeployed to address protest activity in the center of the city, uh, uh, would-be wrongdoers, criminals, become, as he put it, emboldened, and they engage in more crime. Um, uh, that's what he meant by it. The term then uh, uh, took off 
uh, became nationally prominent. And what it seemed then to evolve into is the idea that police officers themselves were withdrawing from full engagement in their duties because of concerns about legal liability, concerns about their names and family uh, uh, being spread all over social media. And so they drew back. And that was an argument for why we were seeing uh, violent crime increases at that time, 2015, 2016. And indeed, we did see increases. Uh, my view is that the Ferguson effect argument, no matter how popular it might have become, uh, never had a great deal of evidence for it. In fact, I've, uh, I worked with a colleague who published a paper suggesting that um, uh, we could find no good evidence that the police en masse were drawing back. But in any event, that's the origin of the term. And since your study that you did, have you engaged in, in further research related to that particular effect or looking at crime statistics in the city of St. Louis and other large cities in the United States? Yes. Uh, uh, I have... Uh, co-authored now eight studies uh, for the Council on Criminal Justice, which is a national organization devoted to evidence-based uh, approaches to reducing crime and improving justice. And uh, in our more most recent study, we looked at uh, crime changes uh, across 10 different offenses for a total of 27 U.S. cities, comparing last year, 2021, with the year before, although our, our data go back to the beginning of 2018. So, yes, I've been following uh, crime rate changes over the last few years quite closely. What are some of the things that came out of those recent studies that you can share with us yeah. and listeners? Yeah, well, if we go back to 2020, the first year of first full year of the pandemic, uh, and recall, your listeners uh, will probably recall that George Floyd was murdered by police in Minneapolis in late May of that year, um, and a great deal of social unrest emerged across the country uh, right after that. Uh, we saw homicide rates in the United States spike at, at, at really at an unprecedented rate. Mm. Uh, so in our own research, we found that over uh, uh, a greater than 30 percent increase in homicide rates in cities we looked at comparing 2019 to 2020. And that was historically unprecedented for a single year increase. Last year, 2021, we continued to see homicides go up. But the rate of increase uh, had slowed considerably. So last year, we saw homicide up in the cities we looked at about 5% compared to the 30% increase the year before. So homicides continue to rise on average in our cities, uh, but the increase uh, slowed from 20 to 21. Now, I know a lot of the... Mm -hmm issues that we hear in the media and that are discussed many times amongst, uh, you know, newspapers, television, radio, changes in policing, the proliferation of guns, and especially mm -hmm. in the state of Missouri with the, what I would call the relaxing of the gun standards back in 2017, specifically, the influence of the pandemic, 
And you also did a recent study, I believe it was, maybe it's not recent, but about five years ago, on inflation and that impact right. on on crime also. Can you discuss sure. those kind of, all those factors? Because it, you really can't put your finger on one of those things saying, well, this is the reason why. And I know people want to know why. Why is this happening? Yeah. Well, I think you've identified uh, uh, most of the major factors. Uh, and you're right, it's difficult to assign priority among them, at least uh, at this point. Clearly, the pandemic played a role in the rise in violent crime we saw in 2020. Uh, and as the pandemic uh, receded somewhat with fits and starts over the next year, we saw that rise in homicide um, uh, slow somewhat. Uh, the proliferation of guns on the street, uh, I think there's little question that that, has, that contributed to the rise, overall rise in gun violence and homicide specifically. Um, uh, the social unrest associated with uh, concerns about police misconduct. Um, uh, social unrest emerged across the country in the summer and into the fall of 2020. It subsided somewhat, and that could account for why we see a somewhat slower increase in homicide last year than the year before. Um, and you mentioned inflation. Uh, in uh, the second half of 2021, uh, uh, last year, we saw inflation rates uh, increase markedly. My own research indicates that uh, high rates of inflation are associated with higher and, and increasing rates of crime, both crime committed for monetary gain uh, and violent crime. Uh, and so the question then becomes, should we expect crime increases associated with the current bout of inflation? And I think from the point of view of the research that's been done, we probably should, uh, which is why I think it's so important that uh, the Fed uh, has announced rate increases uh, to begin controlling or slowing the rate of increase in inflation. Uh, but I do think inflation is another factor. Hmm. Now, how have local police departments, I'm thinking yeah. about the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department sure. or, or other police departments around the United States, what have they done with the research that you and others have, have done related to the things that we've been talking about? Are they just sure. books on a shelf? Are they papers in a drawer? Mm -hmm. Or do they try to determine and change some of the things that you've discussed? Yeah. Well, um, the research indicates that so-called hotspot policing, a term I'm sure most of your listeners recognize, which is to say to uh, increase police patrols in those relatively small areas of cities, including our own city of St. Louis, where uh, violence increases and violence itself are heavily concentrated. The research suggests that that strategy does help to curb violence and nonviolent crime as well. Most police departments, especially big city departments these days, certainly claim to be engaging in so-called hotspot policing. And I think that claim, from what I can tell, is uh, generally credible. Uh, our own city of St. Louis has engaged in that strategy now for some years now. Um, and uh, But it's difficult to say whether the decline in homicide that we saw 
uh, from 20 to 21 can be attributed to uh, um, that particular policing strategy. I should mention, as your uh, listeners may know, that St. Louis experienced a quite sizable drop in homicide from 20 to uh, through the end of last year, a 26% drop. Now, that's from the year 2020 when homicides were way, way up in St. Louis. So one has to take that into account. Nonetheless, a 26% drop is among the largest drops that we've seen uh, in cities uh, across the country. And so the question then becomes, well, what might have accounted for that, that sizable drop? I cannot tell you whether changes in policing, beefing up of hotspot policing or other strategies, uh, how much that might have contributed. Um, you know, uh, as your listeners probably know, the city has made a major investment, five to seven million dollar investment in a program called Cure Violence. Uh, which is a program that trains and places uh, so-called violence interrupters in neighborhoods around the city. And uh, the idea there is that they monitor conflict situations in the area. Uh, they try to select out those that are most likely to result in violence, and then they try to intervene in those conflicts before they turn violent. Uh, the program hasn't produced to my knowledge, uh, any systematic evidence about its effectiveness in reducing violence. I'm engaged right now in a study, I can't tell you what I'm going to find, I'm not finished with it yet, trying to evaluate the effect of that program on violence in the three neighborhoods where it's been operating over the last year. Uh, those neighborhoods, by the way, are Walnut Park East, Wells Goodfellow, uh, Hamilton Heights, and the Dutchtown neighborhood in South St. Louis. Uh, I will publicize the results of my study as soon as it's finished. That sounds great. We'd love to talk to you after that uh, oh, gets yeah. released. Sure. Absolutely. Sure. Uh, can I, let me uh, just ask, uh, I have like two questions. Do you see any real uh, common denominator on why there's such violent crime? Is it uh, economics? Is it because folks are, uh, you know, uh, in a poor area? Uh, and the other question I had is the city versus rule. I don't know if we have time for this, but uh, it doesn't seem like the crime is as bad in the rural areas as the concentration. Right. Uh, yeah, I'll turn it over to you. Sure. Um, yes, um, you point to some of the factors that are clearly implicated in uh, uh, in violent crime across our cities and indeed across the country. Uh, so, economic deprivation, high levels of joblessness, uh, um, being stuck in low-wage, uh, low or no-benefit jobs, um, uh, low levels of educational attainment, um, racial segregation. These are all conditions that are associated with higher levels of violence, no matter where you look. You're also right that typically in rural areas, crime rates are quite a bit lower than they are in in both suburbs and cities, and crime rates tend to be somewhat lower in the suburbs than in central cities. Um, but uh, in recent years, it looks like um, uh, violent crime from a much smaller base has increased both in rural areas and the suburbs, but primarily in central cities. 
So uh, central cities bear the brunt of the increase in violent crime, uh, and, and yet they're also kind of the leaders in the slowing of that increase that we saw last year. Right, right. I, I find it difficult for a mayor to run a campaign and, and make these campaign promises. I'm going to come in and I'm going to lower crime. I'm going to lower yeah. homicides. I, I don't think that's mm-hmm. it's, it's just seems unreasonable to me uh, that they would even make a claim like that. And roll up your sleeves. Right. There are challenges there. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. And all mayors do. Yeah. You know, certainly all mayors in cities. And this would be most cities in which crime is an urgent public problem. Uh, All mayors do that. So I don't think we can fault our mayor. Our mayor certainly did. And so did her uh, her opponent uh, during the election. Um, So, you know, that's going to stay. What I would like to see um, is greater uh, detail when politicians make those kinds of claims and promises, greater detail about actually what they plan to do mm-hmm. on the ground to bring about those reductions. Okay. So I'm not at all uh, too concerned about a mayor saying, I'd like to lower the rate of violent crime. Let's hope so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the question is how exactly what are you going to do? What are mm-hmm. the resources that are available to accomplish that goal? That's what we need. We need need a lot of a lot more detail. Now, I will say that the Cure Violence program in the city of St. Louis received a lot of publicity as it was being debated and then passed. What we haven't seen since it passed and was implemented in the three neighborhoods where it operates is uh, much in the way of systematic evidence about its effect on violence. Um, if you go to the Cure Violence website, there's, you know, there's clearly activity in those areas. Meetings are held. Uh, people uh, are uh, interviewed on the street. Services, some services are provided. What we don't have yet is a good sense of how effective the program has been over the last year in reducing violence. Much more detail is needed from our political leaders about just how they plan to bring about reductions in violent crime. So in in closing, Dr. Rosenfeld, what are two or three things that would be the most helpful to lobby for to deter crime, in your opinion? Well, we could, and some do, of course, lobby for stricter uh, uh, gun safety laws in the state. Uh, That's going to take quite a while. (laughs) So in the meantime, uh, I think that we need to proceed along two paths. One is to redouble efforts at so-called smart policing strategies, the hotspot strategy and others quite like it. Another, however, uh, and it goes hand in hand with the first, is to implement constructive reforms to policing. And St. Louis is moving in this direction to some degree. What do I mean by constructive reforms? Redeploying to other agencies better able to handle them, activities that have fallen pretty much by default on the police. Responding to drug overdoses, as an example, uh, uh, the police receive some training and Narcan uh, to be in the front lines of those kinds of responses, uh, but other agencies are better able to handle most of those calls, it seems to me. Perhaps not all, but many or most. Responding to the day-to-day problems experienced by the homeless and other troubled populations in our city. Uh, Other agencies uh, have personnel that have much more extensive training in that area than our police officers do. 
Were those kinds of activities moved to other agencies, uh, the police would have more time to vote to devote greater attention to their core mission, which has to be confronting uh, high levels of violent crime. So uh, those kinds of police reforms, I'm not talking about abolishing the police or anything of that sort. Those kinds of reforms, in addition to redoubling efforts to engage in so-called smart policing, those are the paths we need to move along right now. Wow. Dr. Rosenfeld, we appreciate your time in talking with us and would love to talk to you down the road once that other information becomes available. And absolutely, uh, greatly appreciate uh, your time today, sir. Thanks. Okay. You're quite welcome. Thank you. We've been talking to Dr. Richard Rosenfeld. He is the Curator's Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And Mark, he's nationally and internationally known for his work. His studies have been crazy. One of the questions I wanted to ask him was how did he, what was the interest in criminology when he had a BA in sociology, (laughs) and what was that transition? Because there was a certain point of time at which he really took off into studying and researching crime and the effects of crime and violent crime and things like yeah. that coming from a background of sociology though that i mean that that foundation right. that's a it is it's an interesting transition there uh i would say yeah uh, and as he was ta- i wish we had more time with him yeah. uh he's such a fascinating uh and articulate uh gentleman and he he really he has his arms around this subject he really so does. well yeah um yeah, there's just so much that he uh, he was he was talking about that. Uh, he, he, one thing he had described, and I, I thought about teachers when he said it, how the police they're a lot like teachers. You know, people send their kids to school, and they think the teacher is going to raise their kids. Right. Uh, and I think the police are expected to do the same thing: be social, you know, be able to handle every situation there are instead of the core thing that they're out there and that's that violent crime you know to protect us and they're expecting them to take care of folks with you know the mental mental issues uh also drug addicts and things like that and they have to distinguish in a in a a split second whether you know deadly force is needed or not i what a what a tremendous uh what a hard job to do and i i don't think people really give teachers or police uh, the credit that they need because they're expected to do an awful lot when they walk out that put that badge on and go out the door and start dealing with society, you know, one-on-one. It's like, well, you're supposed to know. You're supposed to stop and get a social worker to help this guy. Right. It's, I mean, that's, that's a lot to ask of, of an individual, and we'll continue to ask it, and they'll continue to, I think, try to do their best. I really do. I believe they're the, the – big majority of officers are trying to do their very best. No, I, yeah. I, I agree. What you said made made perfect sense to me, and it, it brought up a couple things which we may skip over into the next uh, segment of the show, is, number one, when I read certain legislation that's going on in the city right now, and the person, or I should say the, the group of people that are the enforcers of just some basic minor legislation, it's like, well, the police will be the ones that— that enforce that. And it's right. like, why? Right. Why doesn't a particular department uh-huh. 
become the enforcer of that particular legislation, whether it's like a statute or whether it's a an aldermanic board bill or something like right. that. Why does the police have to be the quote-unquote police for everything? Because you, you said it. They can't. No. They, they have to be dealing with violent crime and other kinds of crimes that impact individuals. Traffic stops. Tra- yeah. Uh, I mean, just uh, jaywalking from very minor to very major. Right. And they're supposed to be deciding what's going on. And uh, I, I, what Should a Should they be the ones to decide whether somebody has a liquor license or not? Yeah. Should they be the ones to decide, you know, whether, uh, yeah. you know, the trash has been picked up or not? Right. You right. know, stuff like that. Because they do. They, they write tickets for that. You didn't, right. you didn't t- bring your, your, your trash cans in you know, the, by the other, 5 o'clock. The other <laughs> thing you mentioned was the similarity with, with teachers. And I think about the pay structure in public entities for public employees. Mm. What is that as it relates to, like, I read, I don't know, um, some people who pick up trash make pretty decent money. Now, maybe they're working for a private entity, which would explain that. But when you look at what they have to do, like you're saying, are they being paid commensurately with the level of expectation that they're supposed to go out there and put their lives on the line? Now, teachers, I was an educator for a long, long time. I didn't have to put my life on the line. But like you said, you're expected to do all these kinds of things, and that's why there's counselors in school. That's why there's social workers right. now in school. That's why there's you know, special education teachers right. in school. Right. That's why there's multiple administrators in right. school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we're finally uh, moving into that direction, finally. I mean, you know, you're, these teachers have been expected, you know, uh, to do all of these different, uh, all these <laughs> different things to raise our children. And uh, you know, just take them to school, and they'll they'll teach them how to tie their shoes. And Unless they use Velcro, right? Which <laughs> okay, <it's, laughs> they can't do that in kindergarten. Don't get me going. Okay. <laughs> what I'd like to discuss in our next segment is the is briefly some of the structures of these systems, because as he was discussing, mm-hmm. we need some reforms, and just like it is in education, there needs yeah. to be some reforms, and and we'll we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a very good conversation with Dr. Rosenfeld. He has published dozens and dozens of articles and chapters in scholarly journals. He's co-edited some books. He is someone who people need to pay attention to and not just uh, go, well, that's a nice study, and then continue down the road. You know, If we continue down the road and we keep getting the same results, you know what that is. We are glad you decided to listen to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. We know there are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and we are glad that you have chosen to listen to us. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.